0: Science diplomacy is many different things to many different people. We have states practicing science diplomacy. We have non-state actors practicing science diplomacy. We have scientists practicing science diplomacy. From that perspective, it's really crucial to get into a dialogue with practitioners to see how they practice science diplomacy and how they explain it to themselves and how, would, how they explain it to others. And also, basically, what their advice is in practicing science diplomacy. In that regard, I'm really happy to have a conversation with Ambassador Bhaskar Balakrishnan, an Indian ambassador with more than 30 years of experience, and with a very interesting perspective on science diplomacy. I'm not going to do justice to his rich experience, so Ambassador, I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself and to give us some first pointers in this conversation on science diplomacy.
1: Uh, Thank you, Katharina. Uh, It's uh, very nice to be on this uh, interview with you and your colleagues. Well, I started off as a a scientist, basically. I graduated in uh, theoretical physics and I spent a few years working in the academic field and teaching and doing research as a typical scientist. Uh, But then, because of various circumstances, I entered the diplomatic service of my country in 1974. And uh, the way it happened for me was that I got posted to Geneva as my first assignment. And uh, Geneva, as you know, is a place which has got a lot of institutions which work in science and technology. Of course, CERN is there, but at that time we were not members of CERN. I did uh, have the opportunity to visit CERN. But uh, in the UN, I was attached to the disarmament uh, area of work. So, in the disarmament area of work, there was a committee on disarmament. They were discussing things like chemical weapons, verification, uh, nuclear disarmament, uh, test ban treaty. So, it was a quite a rich area of science and technology which was being discussed there. And then I was also working with the UNCTAD. At that time, we were discussing this whole Code of Conduct for Transfer of Technology, which uh, went on for a number of years and got nowhere. And the uh, Science and Technology for Development, the UN had a Committee on Science and Technology for Development. So, I was working in those fields and then there were ad hoc uh, conferences like the UN Conference on the Law of the Sea, where I found myself uh, in the committee which deals with marine pollution and scientific research. So that was another area of science and technology for me in the, in the diplomatic sense. And I was also dealing uh, in my second assignment in Geneva, some years later uh, with the WHO. And that was uh, also very interesting because they were discussing uh, really this unknown disease, which had emerged called uh, M- Immune Deficiency Syndrome, AIDS in 1983 and uh, a number of special programs in the WHO where I was representing my country as a delegate on tropical diseases, human reproduction, et cetera. Uh, so that was uh, really giving, made me interested in this whole area of the interface or the interconnections between science and technology and uh, diplomacy. Then I found myself in headquarters where I was heading a division which was originally looking at uh, investment promotion because we had uh, started economic liberalization in our country. So I was uh, quite clear that we cannot talk only about investment promotion, you also need technology promotion. So that was an interesting area and my work involved both uh, investment and technology cooperation and energy security. Uh, health uh, research, I was in some committees we dealing with medical research and of course, ICT and diplomacy because of my background, uh, the ministry made me responsible for ICT applications in the foreign ministry. So that was another interesting area. And uh, then I got posted out uh, to Vienna where I was dealing with UNIDO and UNIDO had a program of setting up science centers uh including the international center for genetic engineering and biotechnology the international center for science and chaos so they had this whole series of programs on setting up international science centers basically to help developing countries access uh, emerging technology Uh, so that was interesting for me and then in cuba i was posted there as the ambassador And Cuba, although it's a developing country and subject to a lot of economic problems, had a fairly advanced biotechnology sector and vaccine development. And of course, in the health sector, primary health, they were very advanced. So that was an opportunity for me to work with, uh, to bring together Indian and Cuban companies to work in the area of vaccines and biotech products. So that was really in my diplomatic career, whether it was by accident or design, I found myself doing a lot of science technology related work. And after I finished my career as a diplomat, uh, I joined uh, the think tank, the research and information systems in 2018. And it so happened that uh, I had really got interested so much in this work on science, technology and international relations. That I got uh, a book authored on this subject published that was funded by the Ministry of External Affairs, thanks to them. And I joined the RIS where I am still working now on their program of science diplomacy, which uh, among other things involves training of diplomats, both Indian and foreign diplomats, and also scientists in science diplomacy, uh, bringing out a quarterly journal on science diplomacy review and uh, publishing a fortnightly alert newsletter on science diplomacy and also working in the area of diaspora engagement uh, because India has a large stem diaspora working in the US, Canada and other countries and it's a priority to get somehow bring that abilities into the Indian ecosystem. So a number of uh, ways by which at our highest level even the prime minister has been wanting to encourage Indian diaspora STEM professionals to work with India. So that is another important uh, area of work. So that's how I have uh, worked in all these areas and I'll continue to continue to look forward to working in these fields. I hope that answered some question about uh, how I got into this whole business. Over to you, Catherine.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. It definitely does. Uh and not just some aspect. What I I find really interesting listening to you is on how many aspects of science diplomacy you touch within a diplomatic career. And so many different aspects that, that are worth discussing, that are worth unteasing. What I find really interesting is how you mentioned Geneva and the kind of, and therefore the importance of this multilateral context. And I also heard mention of CERN, which is of course, one of the prime examples of practicing science diplomacy, both in terms of scientists being at CERN, but also the diplomatic engagement with countries of CERN and countries engaging with CERN. So I really I really took note of that and I really, I really find that extremely interesting. And you gave us such a rich overview of basically what can be called different fields of science diplomacy, also mentioning uh, information communication technology, ICT, which of course is, is a big part and a big interest for us at Diplo. So that, that's really exciting. And if someone would take notes on all of this, they I think they would have almost a definition or like a really great overview of what science diplomacy um, can be. So thank you very much for that. Really interesting. And also amazing that you encompass all of that in you as one person, as one person. So very exciting. And the big question now is, of course, in our conversation, where do we start? Where do we start um, unraveling all of this are kind of going deeper and one way of starting is uh, to ask more about the science and technology policy and science diplomacy of india you're an indian ambassador so i think this might be a good natural um, starting point point. and so i wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about how you would describe the science and technology policy of india and the science diplomacy of india I mean, also keeping in mind, perhaps it's really hard to generalize over those many decades. But perhaps from your perspective, how, how would you describe that? And can, can you give us some, some pointers if we take that as a starting point?
1: Well, thank you, Katharina. Uh, you know, India is a developing country and it's got many of the features of a developing country, but it's also a large country and it's got certain areas where it's fairly advanced. So, it's a a kind of interesting country in terms of how its science diplomacy has evolved. Uh, Well, for, uh, let's say, the most important thing for Indian science diplomacy is the focus on capacity building and the acquisition of new technologies, emerging technologies and applications for development. And then of course the the engagement with the STEM diaspora and of course use of STIs for SDG and technology facilitation. Now if we look at the Indian ecosystem uh, we are only spending 0.7% of the GDP on research and development uh, which is a low figure. The number of researchers per million is very low. Uh, We need And uh, of course, the number of, you know, the scientific institutionals and infrastructure is not sufficient. On the other hand, if you look at the human resources, uh, we do have a large number of young people who are going for STEM education and coming out with degrees. So the natural consequence of this is that when you have a large output of trained people, and you don't have the uh, big enough or strong enough ecosystem to absorb it, uh, you find that many of them go to the US or Europe and build their careers there. And that's what's happened in India over the years. So our priority is therefore to increase our national ecosystem capacity, uh, increase the funding for R&D, increase the number of researchers uh, per million who are based uh, working in India and increase the institutional uh, infrastructure and so on. So, all our policies are geared to that. Now, coming to the specifics of uh, science diplomacy, the, our Ministry of Science and Technology is the main player in this field. Now, they are the ones who actually enter into scientific collaboration with other countries, multilateral as well as bilateral. But we have eight other science departments, including atomic energy, space, uh, earth sciences, Uh, the eight of them the health sector, agricultural research. So, there are eight big science departments, all of whom are spending money on R&D. That's from the government side. In addition, we have uh, state governments. Many state governments have also got science and technology establishments. And they are trying to uh, promote to work in that field. Business and industry, some of the large companies, they also spend on R&D. And we have a large number of higher educational institutions. Uh, Specifically, I could mention the Indian Institutes of Technology, which have been become quite well known in the world for producing high quality graduates. So this is a very complex system and uh, we uh, also, you know, the, the network of science attaches abroad is very weak. We have only four science attaches in different countries unlike uh, some of the European countries of the US. And uh, in some capitals, we have representatives of other science departments, but they are with a very narrow mandate. Like, for example, atomic energy, they only look at IAEA in Vienna, or Department of Space, they only look at uh, work in space with France and so on. So, that's not the typical science attaché's role. So, a lot of the work of scientific cooperation has to be done by Indian diplomats. Uh, fortunately, many of our diplomats uh, have a STEM background. So, that gives us a certain advantage. Now, given the whole complex nature of the science departments, eight or nine of them and ministries, all of them engage internationally with, their, with various partners, signing agreements, entering into activities and so on. So, coordinating all this is a challenge. You know, for example, with, uh, with some countries like China, uh, the Department, the Ministry of Science and Technology has is working with Taiwan. But there are many other ministries which are working with the People's Republic of China. So the coordination is somehow uh, a challenge for us, but also affords an opportunity for synergy and getting the best out of it. So I would say the Indian science diplomacy, you know, there are many challenges, but there are many more opportunities for the development and growth of our science diplomacy. And so that's what makes it a very exciting work. Uh, you know, you cannot compare each country with another, but we have some features of the US, uh, we have some features of the other developing countries. So it's a nice, uh, it's a mixed, complicated, complex picture. Over to you.
0: So thank you so much for painting this very rich and complex uh, picture and what you said at the end it's very interesting how we see different elements of the practice of science diplomacy reflected in what, what India does. So for example you mentioned science attachés which is of course uh, something very strongly pursued by the US and by European countries as you said. At the same time I think you and I are also very aware that This is a question of being able to afford um, a strong network of of science attaches, of course. Uh, What I also find interesting is the mentioning of the diaspora and the importance and richness of the diaspora. And that's something we also hear a lot from from other countries in the global South. And this is exactly the point I kind of want to hook into um, the question of the practice of science diplomacy from the global self so what i'm going to do and this is obviously a difficult task is to ask for an even broader generalization so when we talk about the global self and in itself that's a bit problematic to generalize that much because as you outlined countries in the global south come from very different positions with very different backgrounds um, different sizes different abilities to invest in r d to pursue science and technology policy but If we try to generalize from the perspective of the global self, what are key elements key concerns perspectives when it comes to the practice of science diplomacy. And I think with your experience as a diplomat, you're in a good position to kind of tease out some some of the points that we might generalize about so can you give us some pointers and some hints in, in that direction.
1: Sure, okay. I think that's a very good uh, question and something which is uh, which is of concern to all of us. Uh, you see the whole formal structure of science diplomacy has emerged uh, since 2010, basically pioneered by the AAAS and the Royal Society. So uh, let's look at it from that framework. I mean, they have three pillars of science diplomacy. One is diplomacy for science, Uh, in which you use diplomacy for uh, you know the scientific cooperation now the focus there was on large-scale science projects international collaboration and how to go about it now in the global south the diplomacy for science is somewhat different Uh, we are looking at using diplomacy for building sti capacity national capacity national ecosystem institutions all that So diplomacy is oriented before science should, first of all, target how to strengthen the national ecosystem. And of course, international collaboration is important, and how to engage with large science projects because that is one way of accessing frontier research with a minimum amount of resources by joining and partnering with other countries. We have had a very good experience working with CERN uh, in which uh, our Business and industry, they supply certain components to the CERN, Large Hadron Collider, and CERN pays the money into an account which is used to support our researchers. So it's a win-win situation for both. So uh, this kind of work uh, orientation of diplomacy to engage with large science projects is important for the Global South in terms of accessing top facilities and gaining access to frontier knowledge. And a lot of these projects will come up in the future, because uh, the way science is going, individual countries may not be able to afford large projects, uh, whether it's in space, or astronomy, or radio astronomy, or even in biotechnology. Uh, Another important area where diplomacy for science has to be used is how to use STI for development. Uh, How do we use? science technology and innovation and adapt it for our development needs so this was not there in the AAA's and the royal society so because they are already a well-developed country uh, the next item in this well pillar is diaspora stem uh, and engaging them into the national sti ecosystem and how do you retain sti talent so this is in other words uh, we use our diplomatic engagement to contact the stem diaspora in the advanced countries talk to them about uh, opportunities for collaboration and research or startups in our country and also take their inputs as to what kind of policy changes they want in order to make the engagement with india better so this is an important thing this was not there in the case of the AAAS and the royal society But I know many European countries, including Greece, where I have served, they have a similar problem. They have a very talented STEM diaspora across the world. So this business of diaspora engagement is becoming very important. As we look at, uh, as we see the trend towards increasing mobility of uh, researchers across the globe. So this becomes more and more important. The second pillar is, of course, science in diplomacy. And that is uh, in the, for them for in that field uh, for the global south. It's very important that their delegations be ad- well prepared for engagement in international science and technology discussions. So here, it's very important that the scientists and the diplomats must work together and understand what is being discussed in international science and technology. Uh, and dis- whether it's on cyber security, outer space, and be very clear about what their objective should be, work with other countries, other partners, and try to achieve the best results in international negotiations. The third pillar is uh, science for diplomacy. That is the idea of using science to bring countries together, and especially when there are conflict situations. So this is a relatively less explored area in the global south, but it has a rich potential. Uh, one can look at this SM project in Jordan, where uh, countries who otherwise are uh, very sharply divided are working together on this, uh, uh, on this accelerator X-ray synchrotron source. And this includes countries like Israel and uh, Iran and Pakistan uh, who have totally different approaches to the problems of the Middle East, but yet they work together. So this uh, science for diplomacy aspect is not that well uh, explored in the Global South. There are opportunities. In South Asia, for example, one can look at uh, greater cooperation among the South Asian countries to tackle problems like uh, environment, air pollution, uh, access to energy, renewable energy, uh, health, and pandemic cooperation. Because we have large populations and we have uh, potential outbreaks so science for diplomacy i would say has a good uh, good potential for growth as far as the global south is concerned uh, south north issues and north north issues i do not know i think right now in the north there's a big problem because of the ukraine conflict how do we prevent uh, how do we minimize the breakdown of scientific cooperation as a result of the ukraine uh, tensions over ukraine this is a big challenge for the north in, in science diplomacy But for the South, uh, science for diplomacy means, well, getting more and more South-South cooperation and triangular cooperation uh, going. So that is, I think we have a fairly different perspective, uh, although we have some things in common. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. I'm really happy, in a sense, that you brought this framework from AAAS and the Royal Society into this discussion. And kind of updated it, or kind of used it to think through science diplomacy from a global south perspective. I think that's very much needed, and that's a very interesting perspective and update to that framework that we find in this publication from, as you said, I think 2010, right? So I think that's really important. And this framework obviously has come under question for for some time now, and I think this questioning of this framework from a global south perspective is uh, is quite crucial. So thank you so much for that. I realize we, we had a conversation for, for quite some time now. So I only want to allow myself one last question. That's a question I really wanted to ask right from the beginning. Um, and it kind of goes back to when you introduced yourself and, uh, and your background. So you mentioned you have a strong background in science. You worked as a scientist, you had a career there and then switched over into uh, diplomacy and becoming a diplomatic practitioner and uh, ambassador for India. And that's a really, really interesting perspective. And if if I may add as a footnote, for example, if you look at uh, the German diplomatic um, service, we do not have a majority of scientists in that diplomatic service. And if I remember correctly, you mentioned about India that a lot of Indian diplomats actually have a science background. So that's really interesting. And just as a footnote, that might actually prove to be an advantage in this era of science diplomacy as these topics become more and more important for diplomatic practice. But the question I actually want to ask is about your advice for practitioners, science diplomacy practitioners and kind of also keeping in mind that science diplomacy practitioners might uh, be scientists or come from a strong scientific background might be diplomats might be other non state actors. And so, with the experience you have and also perhaps being able to almost switch hats between being a scientist and being um, a diplomat what is your advice? Do you have anything you would like to highlight for practitioners, anything they should keep in mind? And Obviously, we are going to take very close notes now. So what's your advice?
1: Thank you. I think you've asked a very important question. Uh, Well, you know, diplomats and scientists both can feed into science diplomacy. You need the skills from both sides to be brought together in science diplomacy. So uh, to my mind, uh, science diplomacy, really a broader definition, is going beyond AAAS and Royal Society, is the full integration of science, technology, and innovation into foreign policy and diplomacy. Uh, And how we integrate the two depends on uh, each country's, you know, has its own flavor. So let's come to diplomats. What should they do if they... Well, the diplomats, first of all, uh, we know that many, including many of the Indian diplomats, come from social science backgrounds. We do have almost 40% uh, 40 to 50% who come from engineering and uh, science backgrounds. Uh, but diplomats in general, they need to get familiar with major STI developments and what are the implications. So they need to look at the broad picture of science, technology, innovation, and anything which any major emerging technology or a major uh breakthrough in this field always has implications for societies and for the globe so they need to keep track of some of these broad and major upheavals in science and technology Uh, then of course on a micro level when they are in the field and uh, on assignment in a country uh, they should look at how to report back home on science technology sector in those countries, what is happening in the science technology. Now, this is very important when you are working in an advanced country uh, like the US or uh, European Union, but it also could be important uh, working in the uh, global South. So reporting and analyzing the science technology innovation sector uh, is one job which they should be done and always adds value to the diplomats work back home. And then, of course, engaging with science technology institutions and stakeholders in the host country, like visiting research institutions, research centers, labs, talking to the people there, uh, science ministries. So a lot of useful uh, information comes, and you can come up with useful opportunities where you can work together with them. So this is something I found personally very enriching and very satisfying, is to go out and, visit research centers, talk to the scientists, researchers, and uh, then of course send, uh, send information back home to their part, possible partners who could do some work. Now, nobody actually tells you that, they <laughs> tells you that this is what you should do in the field. Uh, mm. You know, it's part of, for example, if you're doing uh, trade diplomacy or economic diplomacy, the ITC Geneva publishes a book called Manual of Instructions for Commercial Representatives. So that is a sort of Bible for what you should do as a trade for trade promotion or business promotion. Such a similar manual for science diplomats does not exist formally. Of course, every country has its own. And I have always been thinking that it's time that we developed a manual, an operating manual for science diplomats. So that at least they know these are the kind of things they can do and how to do it uh, when they are put in the field. Now let's come to the scientist side of it. Scientists, on the other hand, they need to be familiar with the basics of international cooperation mechanisms. How do you work with an institution abroad? What, are they, what is the framework available within your country? Are there bilateral agreements? Uh, how, do, how do you exploit the bilateral agreements and the resources and funding which is available? And they should also learn how to interact and communicate better with the foreign policy community and analyze the international repercussions of major science technology developments. For example, if they are in the field of uh, say biotechnology and something new comes up in the field of uh, reproduction research or gene therapy, they should be able to communicate the substance of what is happening to a wider audience and also try to bring out what are the impact of this on the world's uh, countries in the world. Is it going to change? Is it a game changer? There'll be new issues to discuss, all that. So, the international, they should analyze the international repercussions of major STI developments and, especially, to identify opportunities and challenges. And they should engage with major international STI cooperation activities, like large projects I mentioned. Horizon Europe is another. Many of, our, for example, many of our scientists working in institutions in India not really familiar with horizon europe and what are the opportunities available there it could be so in other countries in the global south so uh, although i know horizon europe is fairly complicated not easy to uh, get a project done but uh, it has many many advantages so these are some of the things which uh, scientists and diplomats need to do and uh, it will add value to their own careers and it will add value to their contribution to the country which they are serving Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. This was really interesting advice. And I also like how you distinguish between um, diplomatic practitioners and uh, and, and, and scientists. And I think there was some really, really um, valuable valuable advice. At the same time, there was also, uh, it almost felt like a support, promotion, huge push for, for science diplomacy and the richness the practice of science diplomacy has to offer. So thank you so much for this. Uh, Ambassador Balakrishnan, it was an absolute pleasure. And I think there are a lot of notes we will be taking from this conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for uh, this opportunity. And uh, I look forward to further conversation and engagement in the future. Thank you.
0: Thank you.